this morning, um, I don't believe we have any baptisms. If someone in this service decides they want to be baptized, we can, we can get some water together real quick, uh, but you'll have to get baptized in the next service. So, but uh, it being a fifth Sunday, one of the, one of the texts that the church fathers point to um, for baptisms is found in 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5 is where we are going to spend most of our time. We'll be cross-referencing some stuff um, with the New Testament here. Uh, it is the story of the healing of Naaman. And as I was preparing for this message, I think the last time I heard a lesson on the story of the healing of Naaman, I believe I was in elementary school. So this is a story that typically we teach to children and then say, you got it, and then we move on. Um, and my goal today is to remind you of this story, but not just that, uh, to remind you of the gospel. That the story of Naaman is a demonstration that sinners are saved by grace through faith. That that is what the story of Naaman is about. It is not simply about God's power to heal leprosy, although he has that. That is not what the story is actually about. The story is about a pagan, idol-worshipping, Gentile leper who becomes a repentant believer in the God of Israel. That is what the story is actually about, that Naaman thinks he needs cured from his leprosy. But in reality, he is dead in his trespasses and sins, and God makes him alive. That that is what the story actually is about, and so he comes for physical healing and receives spiritual healing. But that is what 2 Kings 5 tells us. And so... Today we are going to be in this story. Um, the story ends kind of strangely, uh, just so spoilers. At the end, uh, Elisha's servant gets leprosy uh, for taking money from Naaman. That's really weird. Uh, it's not usually the part we tell the children. Um, we usually end on, and Naaman was clean and it was wonderful, and then he went on his way. Uh, and then the story actually ends in a very strange place. I thought about starting with that, um, but... Uh, I don't think I know more than God, and he ended the story with Gehazi, and so we'll end there too. Um, and so that is where we will be. One of my favorite things in the Old Testament is we have a through line of faith that justifies sinners. Through line of faith that justifies sinners, and not just Israelite sinners, but Gentile sinners. Sinners who are part of a different people. Um, this is what First Peter applies to us from Hosea, to the people who it was said, you are not my people. They will call, be called my people. And so if you're in the room today and are not of Jewish descent, then as you read the Old Testament, you find that you are an outsider. You are unclean. Just by virtue of the fact that you are not part of the people of God, you must become part of the people of God. And yet, as we read the stories in the Old Testament, over and over again, we find Gentile believers. We find the story of Rahab, a prostitute, who takes in the spies when they come into Jericho. And she's justified. And she is included for us in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 and included in the genealogy of Jesus, right? Because of the scarlet cord, because, because she has believed in the God of Israel. We have Ruth, a Moabitess, who refuses to let her, her uh, mother-in-law go back to Israel alone and becomes the great-grandmother of David. 
also included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. One of my favorites is found in Daniel, that we actually have a part of Old Testament scripture, the Hebrew scriptures, written by a pagan king who comes to faith in the God of Israel. That there is a part of Daniel, not written by Daniel, but written by Nebuchadnezzar. Because God humbles him so that he can repent. And then we have this story of Naaman. Naaman is found in 2 Kings chapter 5. At this point, Israel's kingdom has been separated. Ahab is dead. We are two kings separated from that. And if you don't know, um, as you look at the stories of Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms, Israel has, they roughly have about 20 kings each. Judah gets some good kings out of the, out of the, out of the bag of, of kings. Not very many, but some. Israel has no good kings. Zero. All of them do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. All of them are idol worshipers. Every single one of them. And so we will see a king in this passage from Israel, and we will see a prophet in Israel. Elisha, a man who watched as Elijah was taken up into heaven and receives a double portion of the anointing upon Elijah. He has at this point multiplied food. He has brought people back from the dead. He has done all of these amazing works. And now... He's going to have an interaction with Naaman that centers around him being washed and made clean. And so my title for today is simply what the servants of Naaman tell him is wash and be clean. Wash and be clean. So 2 Kings chapter 5, if you're there, then we will read. Um, We're going to kind of stop and start. So uh, Naaman, commander of the army from the king of Aram, was a man important to his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior, but he had a skin disease. Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. Therefore... The king of Aram said, go, and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, when the letter comes to you, note that I have sent you, my servant Naaman, for you to cure him of his skin disease. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, am I God? killing and giving life, that this man expects me to cure a man of a skin disease, recognize that he is only picking a fight with me. And so we are introduced initially to three, four characters maybe. We have the king of Aram. The king of Aram, we find out later, is, serves a god named Rimen. Rimen is the uh, Aramean name for Baal. He's a thunder god. He brings the rain. He is the reason they have water. So later, Naaman's going to say, aren't the waters in Damascus better? It's because he assumes that his god gave him those waters. Um, That this is who he serves is, at this point, he is a Baal worshiper. And so Naaman is unclean because he has broken the first of the commandments. And so he cannot be part of the family of God, cannot be part of the covenant people. Why? Because he serves a different god. But Naaman for all of the uncleanness, has a couple things going for him. First, he's the commander of an army that is extremely successful. He's the commander of the army of these people. They've gone on raids into Israel, and they've won. Actually, in the next stories, they are going to lay siege to Samaria. Um, they, They are a successful army, and he is a valiant warrior. 
and he's important to his king, and he's highly regarded because of all of his victories that the Lord gave him. It doesn't say that Rimmon gave him, that the Baals gave him, that he won on his own. Instead, if you look in your text in chapter or verse 1, it says the Lord, and it's all in capital letters. So that means Yahweh himself gave Naaman these victories over Israel. Yahweh himself gave Naaman his leprosy, made him a commander made him valiant, gave him all these things. And so we see as the story progresses that it is actually Yahweh himself, the God of Israel, who is arranging all of this so that Naaman will have faith, who is arranging all of this so that Naaman will know that there is a God in Israel, that the sovereignty of God is putting all of this together so that there will be a young servant girl who has the faith and the boldness to say to her mistress, If only you went back to Israel, but this time not to take things, but because there was a prophet there who can heal you. If only you would go back and you could be healed. And so God is putting all this together, but he has a skin disease. He has a skin disease. We find out at the end of the chapter that Gehazi is going to be struck with the same skin disease and he is going to look like snow. So he has leprosy. He is unclean. He cannot come before God. And so he is now triply unclean. He is a Gentile. So he would need to convert to Judaism to be part of the people of God. He worships other gods. So he has broken the first table of the law. And he has leprosy. So he would never be allowed in the tabernacle. And so Naaman, triply unclean, has no hope. And it is at this point that we could say, what is the leprosy in your life? But that would be an awful way to describe this. Instead, I can tell you what it is. It is that Ephesians 2 says that before Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. That your fate was much worse than a leper. It wasn't that you had a skin disease that was thought to be incurable, that maybe someone could give you relief from, that maybe in your country isn't that bad. Instead... The truth of the matter is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they plunged us all into death. Not sickness, not that we might not be able to figure it out, death. That by this one man's sin, all have died. And so we all find ourselves in the same place as Naaman. We need God to heal us. We need an act of God to make us well. We can't make ourselves well. And sometimes what we do as Christians is we hear the the gospel and we say, you know what, that was cool, and now we need to get on to the other parts. But the imperatives of the gospel make no sense without the indicatives. The imperatives of the gospel make no sense without the indicatives that you are a sinner who needs to be saved by the grace of God through faith. There is no other way to get to the Father except through Jesus Christ. That he has taken on your iniquities, your sins. God placed them on him at his death, and not only that, he defeated them when he was raised on the third day, and now he is seated at the right hand of God. That you, like Naaman, are without hope. Unless you are saved by grace through faith. That that is your only hope. Naaman goes to the king to get healed, but the king 
He's a bad king. He doesn't even serve God. He's an okay king because he tears down some of the idols, but not a good king. And so Naaman doesn't even know where to go. And so this morning, Naaman reminds us of the gospel. That Jesus says that unless the Spirit draws us to him, none of us will come. That it is God who has called you. That it is at just the right time that Christ died for the ungodly. That it is when you were his enemy that he died for you. Not after you had made a decision. Not after you had gotten your life together. Not after you stopped doing certain things. Instead, it is when you were his enemy, a hater of God under the wrath of God, that he died for you. To save you. To make you well. To cure you. So that you could wash and be clean. And so Naaman hears from this young girl, and I love the servants in the story because the servants have a boldness that many of us do not have. The young girl is not promised that she will be released. She is not promised that she will have prosperity. She is not promised that she will get anything for it except that she declares that she has faith in God, and if Naaman were to put his faith in God, he would be healed. In her vocation, where she finds herself, having been stolen from her land. This isn't a fun, fun service time. She's not up just serving so she can make money and take it back to Israel. No. Naaman has raided the land of Israel and taken her with him. And still, she has not lost her faith that God is good and that God saves. And so she declares to a man who no doubt could have her thrown in prison, no doubt has control over her entire life, that if he were to put his faith in Christ, in God, he would be clean. And so Naaman listens. This is a surprising thing about Naaman. He's a valiant warrior. He is not just some random military guy. He's in charge of the whole army. And yet when his servants talk to him, he listens. It's very strange. He listens to the servant girl, and in a moment he'll listen to his other servants while he's in a rage. It doesn't make any sense, but he does. And so I think we can, we can take that and understand that it is God working in him. Because nothing we know about Naaman up to this point means that he should listen to servants. In fact, he's going to get enraged when Elisha sends him a servant. And yet God sends him servants over and over again to tell him to wash and be clean. And so he sends a letter to the king. The king at this point is Joram. Joram says, oh, he's just picking a fight with me. The king always does this. We have this strange relationship. Sometimes we work together, sometimes we don't. This king just wants to go to war with me. So he sent me his unclean commander of the army with chariots and horses so that when I cannot make him well, they can attack us again. And Elisha's response is wonderful because Elisha says this in chapter 8, or verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king, why have you torn your clothes? And I imagine Elisha at this point is fed up. It is not that he's like, hey, what are you doing? I didn't know what was going on. No, it's like you knew he wasn't looking for you. You don't serve God. Like, you're not going to be able to cure the man of the skin. You know that Elisha is down the street. What are you doing? Like, send him to me, and then he'll know there's a prophet. So why did you tear your clothes? What are you doing? Send him to me, and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. 
And so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. This won't be the first time that this kingdom comes to the door of Elisha's house, but at this point, it is for a healing. And so they lead a parade all the way to the front door of a prophet, a man the kings of Israel hate. And yet, here comes a procession of chariots and horses led by Naaman himself, the whole army coming to meet Elisha. And Elisha sends him a messenger. Doesn't even come outside. And we know from the next verse that this enrages Naaman. He's not like, oh, that's fine. That's cool. No, because he is a servant of Baal, no doubt in his own country, if he went to one of his own false prophets, they would have treated him with the honor that is due to a commander of an army. No doubt. In our country, if we knew that a commander was coming to hear the gospel, we would think we need to treat them with honor. And yet Elisha is not a respecter of persons. Because God is not a respecter of persons. And so it does not matter that Naaman has commanded armies. It does not matter that he is a valiant warrior. What he needs is to wash and be clean. What he needs is faith. And so Elisha does not give him the honor maybe he expects Instead, he sends a messenger who says, hey, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your skin will be restored and you will be clean. Now, we must ask the question that Naaman's about to ask, which is, are there medicinal properties in the Jordan River which causes leprosy to go away? Answer? Anybody? No. If you somehow contracted leprosy and then took a flight to Israel and went to the North Jordan River and dunked yourself seven times, there is no promise in scripture that you would be made clean. That's that's not what's happening here. Instead, the word of God has been connected to an action that he is supposed to take. Because when he takes it, he will show that he has faith. This is what happens in the wilderness with the fiery serpents. There are serpents that come and bite the people, and God says to Moses, make a bronze serpent. And when the people look at it, they will be healed. Now, if you go into the mountains and a snake bites you, You should not try to fashion for yourself a bronze serpent to stare at in order to be healed. Because you have been not told by God that you can do that. Instead, all of these things are pointing us to Christ. That when we look at Christ, who was raised up for our sins, we will be made clean. That when we are washed We are made clean. To make this clear, 1 Corinthians 6 says this. Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And so he says, you know know what it looks like for someone to be wicked. You know what it looks like for someone to be unclean like Naaman. And, verse 11, some of you used to be like this. Or the way that I memorized it was, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so the command to every person throughout time is the same as the command to Naaman, wash and be clean. How? By putting your faith in Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you are washed and made clean. 
You then take on the sign of the covenant, which is baptism. You tell the world of your faith. That you have been made clean. That you used to be like Naaman. Not that you used to be a leper. But you used to be a Gentile, pagan, idol worshiper. And now you have been washed and made clean. So... Elisha tells him to go and be clean and Naaman got angry and left and said I was telling myself this is what he thought would happen he will surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and he'll wave his hands over the place and cure the skin disease aren't Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel probably the Jordan isn't necessarily a clean river it's not necessarily a nice place so maybe maybe you have better water somewhere else which tells us that it's not the water that's doing the cleansing. It's God who's doing the cleansing. Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? And the answer is no, he couldn't. Because the word of God was not connected to those waters. He could go home and wash seven times in both rivers and still have leprosy. So he turned and he left in a rage. It's not just that he was angry, he was enraged. An enraged military leader leaving the house of Elisha, having been sent on a quest by a little girl to Israel, a place he's already raided in the past. So the king, at this point, seems like he is going to be justified in his concern that Naaman's just going to attack when it doesn't happen. And it's not going to not happen because there isn't healing for him. It's not going to not happen because God doesn't cleanse people. It's going to not happen because Naaman, at this point, does not have faith. And his servants approached him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? If the the prophet would have said, Hey, give me all of that money and then I'll cleanse you, you would have done it. If he would have said, Go on some other quest, you would have done it. In fact, you're already on a quest. You've already come all this way to Israel. How much more should you do it when he only tells you to wash and be clean? He hasn't asked you to do that much. It's worth a shot. All he told you to do was wash and be clean. Brothers and sisters, those who are far from God, God has not asked you to do some great thing. Instead, on the day of Pentecost, as Peter finishes his sermon and he tells the people the gospel that Jesus has died for their sins and been raised to life again, they are cut to the heart and they say, brothers, what should we do? He says, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. And the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God would call. That same promise still stands today for each of us, that we are those who were far off. We are those who the Lord our God would call. And so we are called to repent, to wash and be clean. Simple. And yet we think there should be so much more. We want there to be so much more so that we could say how much we did to save ourselves. But when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. The whole point is you didn't do anything. The whole point is Naaman had money, he had armies, he had a position. He could have done so many things with all of it. And God doesn't want any of that. Instead, he wants his faith. That he would wash, 
and be clean. So Naaman went to the, down and dipped himself in the Jordan. It is the continual call of this gospel that you repent and you are made clean that Naaman believes. It is the third time he's been told God can make him clean. The second time he's been told to wash and be clean. And finally it gets through the persistence of the gospel. Gets through. You can wash and be clean, Naaman. And so he washed according to the command of the man of God seven times. And then his skin was restored and he became like the skin of a small boy and he was made clean. This points us to 2 Corinthians 5, where it says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It wasn't that he now had the skin of a 45-year-old. It's not just that the leprosy left. That's not what happened. It's how we teach the story, but it's not what happened. He didn't have leprosy and then not have leprosy. He had leprosy, and then he had skin like a young boy. His skin was entirely renewed. He is transformed. And we find in the next verses that it is not just his skin that has been transformed, but his heart has been transformed. That my hope is that you too have had this same experience, that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you did, you were transformed. Not made better, not upgraded, transformed. Made into something entirely different, a new creation. And so he has the skin of a small boy and Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him and declared, I know there's no God in Israel, or no God in the whole world except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. That his salvation, his saving, his curing from this leprosy makes him realize that there is no other God, that all of these gods he served for his entire life, that he has worshiped, that he has bowed down to, all of them are nothing. The false prophets in the land of Aram, nothing. Just making stuff up. Just engaging in Baal worship for no reason. The stones that he bows down to, there's nothing behind them. There is no God, Baal. That's why Elijah, when he confronts the servants of Baal, can say, maybe your God is sleeping or on the toilet or he's taking a break. Because there is no Baal. There is only Yahweh. There is only God, the God of Israel. He is the only true God. And he has saved Naaman. And so he wants to give something to Elisha. This is a good thing. He wants to give him a gift. He, he wants to show his gratitude because he has been forgiven much. He wants to give something. Please, he says, let me give you a gift to show you how grateful I am that I've been made clean. But Elisha knows that if Naaman gives him a gift, then Naaman could go back and say, and then I gave him this gift, and all the false prophets in the entire land could say, well, it's because you gave him the gift. If you wouldn't have given him the gift, then the, then the healing wouldn't have stayed. You wouldn't have kept the healing. He healed you, and then so he could get your money. But Elisha's not going to do that instead. Elisha says this, as the Lord lives in whose presence I stand. I will not accept it. I'm not going to take anything from you so that you can't boast. 
about what you did for God. Because really, Naaman did nothing but believe. That the word of God was given to him to believe, to wash, and be clean. And he believed. And since he believed, he washed, was made clean. And Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. And so Naaman responded, If not, please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry. Why? Because your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or sacrifice to any other god but the Lord. This is how we know Naaman wasn't just transformed on the outside. He is a Baal worshiper. That the common practice of this time, even in Israel, is to pray to your God before you go into battle, and he is a commander of an army. He can no longer pray to Baal that he would have success in his military conquests because he knows Baal doesn't exist. And he's been so transformed that even at his high position, which we're about to find out, means that he has to constantly be going to the temple of Baal. He will not worship Baal. That his vocation also isn't changed. That he does not join the people of Israel. That he is not circumcised. He does not get the law. Instead, he says, I will only offer sacrifices to God, the God of Israel. He is saved by faith. It is, it is because of the grace of God that he is saved. He doesn't come and say, you know what? I'm never going to go back again. You guys can have all my chariots. He goes back and he serves his king in the vocation he finds himself in doing the good works God prepared in advance for him to do. Because this has always been the plan of God. It has not been a secondary plan. Instead, Israel was meant to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations. People like Naaman were supposed to see Israel and see that there was a God in Israel and therefore come to him. And so he wants to give something, but Naaman will not, or Elisha will not accept it. And so no longer will he burn any sacrifices. However, in a particular matter, may the, the Lord pardon your servant when my master, the king of Aram, goes in to the temple of Rimen to bow and worship while he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow in the temple of Rimen. When I bow in the temple of Rimen, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And so Elisha said to him, go in peace. And so what is the comfort of this man who has faith? It is the continued forgiveness of God. That even after he has had faith, when he does something, he doesn't even know, not necessarily wrong. He's just helping his king. He's serving the way he's always served. He says, when I go into this temple, let me be forgiven. Let me be forgiven for the things that I'm going to continue to do. And that for you, brothers, sisters, this is the comfort if you have had faith. That God is not a God of second chances, but a God of loving kindness and grace, and so he forgives you. That later today, when you transgress the law of God, he forgives you, if you repent. And so Naaman repents in advance. He says, God, don't hold the sins against me, I know I'm going to do that this is why we are called daily to pray the Lord's Prayer, that we would be forgiven of our trespasses, that we would not be led into temptation. Because Jesus expects that you, as a follower of him, will need his forgiveness continually. Continually. Over 
and over again because his grace doesn't run out. And his grace for Naaman doesn't run out. He doesn't say to Naaman, now make sure, here's the law, I'm gonna give it to you, make sure you don't do anything wrong. And if you don't do anything wrong, you can stay. But this is often what we think of the Christian life. Instead, the beauty of the gospel, the scandal of the gospel, is that I have been forgiven more times than I can count. Over and over again. I have transgressed the law of God. I have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed by what I've done and what what I've left undone, and still he forgives me. Every time. Every time. Because he forgives Naaman. So I know he will forgive me. He forgives Nebuchadnezzar. He forgives Ruth. He forgives Rahab. He forgives Peter when he denies Jesus. He forgives every person in scripture who puts their faith in Christ is forgiven. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is because of the character of God that he forgives you, not because you come and bring him something. You can't pay for your forgiveness. You don't have that kind of currency. Instead, Christ has already paid for it. Your forgiveness has been paid for. Accept it. Wash and be clean. But we don't want that because that's scandalous because then we, who pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, won't be able to say that we did nothing. That Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Not to save good people. Good people don't need doctors. People who are well don't need doctors. The sick need a doctor. And we all, like Naaman, were sick. And so we would think that this would be the story ending. Go in peace. What a great ending. And Naaman goes in peace. And we're like, yes, got it. He's healed. And yet, the story keeps going. Much to uh, our chagrin. Uh, Because not a great ending. Not the ending I would have chosen. If you've read the story, maybe you haven't in a while, Second Kings 5 is going to end with a man trying to deceive Naaman. A man who immediately is going to say that wasn't enough. God didn't get his pound of flesh. Why didn't Elisha take any money from him? It wasn't enough. We need to take something from Naaman to make sure he knows how good the gospel is. As if him being forgiven for his sins isn't enough for him to know how good the gospel is. As if me being forgiven of my sins isn't enough for me to know how good the gospel is. And so after Naaman had traveled a short distance from Elisha, Gehazi, notice he waits. He doesn't go immediately to Naaman. He doesn't go and say, oh, hold on, hold on, Elisha. Maybe we should talk about this money thing. Like, you're a prophet, the king doesn't like you. You know, we could use some money. Because that would be helpful. Uh, We've had famines that the prophets have caused. Like, this isn't a good thing. If we get some money from this guy, he has tons of silver and gold. And then we would be able to buy stuff and build a really cool prophet building. And it would be super awesome. this uh, This is what Gehazi is thinking. And Elisha just lets him go. Like... This is what Jesus talks about in the parable of the prodigal son, right? That the older son is like, really? This dude took all your stuff? 
this pagan idol worshiper, and he gets grace? How dare you forgive him? I'm the one who deserves forgiveness, but that guy doesn't deserve forgiveness. And we forget that 1 Corinthians 6 says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. Not but you washed yourself. Not but you cleansed yourself. Not that you justified yourself. Not that you sanctified yourself, but it is an act of God that you have been made clean. So Gehazi, the attendant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, and we get the thoughts of, Elisha, er, of Gehazi, my mess- master has let this Aramean name it off lightly by not accepting from him what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Seems reasonable, right? So often our response to seeing sinners come to faith in Jesus is, well, we gotta get something from them. They need to be useful somehow. The, I mean, do you see all the sins they did? Do you know how bad they were? Do you see how often they're asking for forgiveness? This is ridiculous. They are supposed to be perfect like me. This is Gehazi's thought, at least. And so often I think this is our thoughts. We see someone come to faith, a pagan idol worshiper, dead in their sins, made alive by God, and we go, oh, I mean, I guess. Like, I mean, what? How does this guy get grace? It's ridiculous. I deserved my grace. When I got saved, I obviously was pretty good already. Like, I wasn't actually dead. I was just sick. It was fine. I could have made it on my own. So Gehazi, who has watched Elisha raise people from the dead, has watched Elisha multiply bread, has watched Elisha save people over and over again because of God, not because of Elisha, watches this pagan idol worshiper receive grace, and he says, no, that's too much. That's too far. Okay, Elisha, you've done it now. You gave the Gentile guy grace? It's ridiculous. And so Gehazi pursued Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and asked, is everything all right? Notice we still see a change in the character of Naaman. The enraged military leader is concerned for the needs of the servant of Elisha. His character has changed. He doesn't need to get off his chariot. He's the commander of an army going back to his country. That's ridiculous. This is a servant. Naaman gets down and says, is everything okay? Is there anything I can do? And so we see that, again, Naaman, transformed by the grace of God, not just made clean from his leprosy, made clean in his heart. And Gehazi said, it's all right. My master has sent me. Hold on. No, he didn't. Nobody sent you, Gehazi. My master has sent me to say, I have just now discovered that two young men from the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. No, they didn't. Please give them 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing. So he breaks the second table of the law. Naaman's sin is that he does not believe in the God of Israel. He has broken the first table of the law at the very beginning. Gehazi has seen the God of Israel at work over and over again, and yet when it comes to the second table, the love your neighbor side of the Ten Commandments, don't lie. Do not bear false testimony against your neighbor. Do not covet what your neighbor has. He breaks it, which shows that he's not following the first table. 
that he doesn't actually believe in the God of Israel, that he doesn't actually believe in Yahweh, that he doesn't actually have faith, because if he did have faith, it would change Gehazi, and yet he is a greedy man. And Naaman insisted, please accept 150 pounds, and he urged Gehazi, and then packed 150 pounds of silver into two bags, and with the two sets of clothing, Naaman gave them to, to, to his two attendants, who carried them ahead of Gehazi. And when Gehazi came to the hill, hold on, they were in a house, so he knows Elisha's going to see him, and so they stop a ways from the house, so that he can carry the stuff on his own and hide it, much like Achan so the people of God go into Jericho and he sees some silver that looks real nice. And so he puts it in his tent thinking, nobody's gonna know. And then later, I'll melt it down, make it into money, and I'll have money and it'll be wonderful. And Elisha's not gonna realize that these are, this is money from Aram. Like, why, how would he know that? Or the clothing. He's not gonna recognize the clothing that Naaman brought. That'd be ridiculous. So they get to the hill and he deposited them in the house and then he dismissed the men and they left. And Gehazi came and stood by his master, and Elisha asked him, where did you go? Gehazi? And he replied, your servant didn't go anywhere. I've been here the whole time. You're just an old prophet guy. You don't know what you're talking about. I was just downstairs. Not a big deal. I didn't go anywhere. Notice he has to lie to cover up the lie, to cover up the lie, to cover up the lie. He has to keep bearing false testimony against his neighbor. And then Elisha says this, which is terrifying and probably why you don't want to work for the prophet. He says, my heart, didn't my heart go with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? I mean, it's, this one says, and my heart didn't go with you. But didn't, wasn't I with you the whole time? Oof, that's scary. But Gehazi should have known this because what Elisha said to Naaman was, as surely as the Lord lives in whose presence I stand. Elijah has been in the presence of Yahweh himself, and Gehazi thinks it'd be a good idea to go away, and Elisha won't. It's not like God goes everywhere. It's not like God is omnipresent. Like, it's not like he's going to know if I go down the street and get some money in a way that I wasn't supposed to. And Gehazi doesn't get to speak anymore. Elisha says, is this the time to accept silver and, and, and clothing? Olive orchards, vineyards, flocks, herds, male and female slaves. This isn't actually what Gehazi got. Now Elisha knows the heart of Gehazi, exactly what Gehazi wanted to do, was to take this money and make a name for Gehazi, make a name for himself so that people would honor him. Because all he got was silver and clothing. And yet, Elisha knows what Gehazi will do with this is buy olive orchards, vineyards, flocks, herds, servants. He will make himself wealthy, build himself a new house, a better house, and people will know about Gehazi. Elisha refused to accept money from Naaman. Gehazi was smart enough to take the money. And therefore, Naaman's skin disease will cling to you and your descendants forever. So Gehazi went out from his presence diseased, resembling snow, and that is the end of the story. Not how he would end the story. Gehazi leaves the house of his master covered in leprosy. And not only him, but his descendants forever. If he already has kids, I imagine they were very shocked when they were struck with leprosy in the middle of a day. That would be surprising. But it's not just the leprosy. Now Gehazi is unclean. 
It's not just that he has, he has a rash that he's gonna have to deal with. He's unclean. He will have to announce himself on the road as he passes the Jewish people. He will be allowed to go into the presence of people in the city, but he will not be allowed to live in the city. And so I believe in 2 Kings 5, we have two warnings. One warning is for us who have believed that we would not have the same mind as Gehazi. That we would not think we could exact some price for other people's salvation. That when we see sinners saved by grace, our response is to be joy. Gehazi should have rejoiced that Naaman was saved, that he wasn't just cured of leprosy, but he's part of the people of God now. The response of Gehazi should be joy. Our response should be joy. That even though today we have no baptisms, that in July we'll have baptisms again. We have some people who are out of town, so hopefully they'll be here, and they will be baptized. And our response as they are washed and made clean, not by removing of dirt, as Peter says, but as, a, as to, to say they have a clear conscience before God through Jesus Christ, that we are filled with joy that another sinner has been saved by grace. And that we wouldn't go to them afterwards and say, now, what are you going to do for us? But instead, Remind them of the gospel. Remind ourselves of the gospel. Remind ourselves that we used to be those who would not inherit the kingdom of God, but we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified. And then we have a second warning. A much scarier warning. A warning that every book in the New Testament gives us that there will be false teachers like Gehazi, that there will be people who come to you to take your money by teaching you something other than the gospel. This will happen, not it might happen, and they will be within the church, wolves in sheep's clothing, like Gehazi, a wolf in sheep's clothing, serving the prophet, seems to be in the right place at the right time, has seen all the miracles, and yet does not serve neighbor, does not serve God, and is only out for his own gain, that this is the mark of a false prophet. Greed. That what they want to do is take something from you. And so... As you go about your Christian life, if anyone comes to you and says to you, you must sow a seed in order to get your breakthrough, don't listen to them. They're Gehazi. They're Gehazi. They're, they're not Elisha. That any prophet who is in prophecy in order to make a prophet has committed the error of Balaam is what Jude tells us. Balaam is a prophet who God talks to, doesn't, and God doesn't allow him to curse Israel, but he's only there to make money. He's like, you know what? If I tell people stuff that's gonna happen, I can make a lot of money. And today, there are people 
within the body of Christ in America who are out to make money from you. That is their goal. Their goal is not that you would know the gospel. Their goal is not that you would know that you are saved by grace through faith. Their goal is not to be like the servant girl and the servants of Naaman, which is how Paul describes himself. That you should all consider us servants. Instead, their goal is to buy olive orchards and vineyards and servants and houses and land. And the way they do that is by deceiving those who are young in the faith. That Naaman has just believed God and Gehazi seizes the opportunity of a man who does not know the law, does not know the warnings for false prophets. Instead, he seizes the opportunity to take from Naaman. And then we hear of his punishment, and we are pointed to the punishment which Jesus says will happen to these false prophets. Gehazi gets leprosy forever. The whole family of Gehazi will never be in the family of God because of the sin of Gehazi. False prophets will find themselves thrown into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. They have waiting for them eternal conscious torment, unclean forever. And so we are warned not to follow them because then our end will be like theirs. And so how do we know whether or not we're following someone who is teaching in this way? You have your Bible. In Acts, we are told of the Bereans who when Paul comes to them, they check the scriptures to make sure the gospel is what's in the scriptures. They check the Old Testament and they say, is this actually what's being taught? And so one of the ways you do this is you do not listen to preaching with an open mind. You listen to preaching with an open Bible. That after I'm done teaching you about 2 Kings 5, you don't say, well, that was cool that you knew all that stuff about 2 Kings 5. I'm never going to read 2 Kings 5 again because you read it to me. No. Go check. Make sure that what I've told you is actually what's in Scripture. When Nigel preaches, when Gordon preaches, don't just say, well, they said it, they went to seminary, they've got it. No, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Who Jesus says will reveal truth to you. As you read scripture, he reveals truth to you. And so if anyone comes to you preaching a different gospel, a different Jesus, a different spirit, let them be accursed. Those are the words of Paul. Not let them, you know, go to a different church and don't worry about it. Let them be accursed. Anathema upon them. They're not part of the family of God and they won't be ever because they have waiting for them the same fate as Gehazi. And so my encouragement to you is a strange place to end a passage, right? It's a strange place to end a story. Would have liked it better if we didn't have the Gehazi part. Would have been cool. But instead we have this so that we will know that we are supposed to check the teaching we are receiving against the word of God. And anything that doesn't match up, it is our responsibility to call out. Not a possibility that we might call it out. It is our responsibility. 
call out teaching that does not line up with the word of God. And so, we have this story that spans just a short time in the life of Elisha that teaches us so much. First, if you've already been baptized, it causes you to look back at the gospel in joy because the gospel is scandalous that even I could be saved. Not that even Naaman could be saved, that I could be saved, that you could be saved. Not because of anything you could bring to God, but because of the grace of God. This should cause us to be filled with joy. But not only that I could be saved, but it should fill me with joy that you also have believed in Christ and therefore have received grace. That no matter how far off you were, he has called you. That no matter what sins you committed, he has called you into marvelous light to be a royal priesthood and that the requirement for that priesthood is faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, as our worship team comes up, finally, we are warned that as that priesthood, we must be committed to the word of God. We must be committed to the grace of God. We must be committed to the gospel. And so we must know what the gospel is. We must remind ourselves daily of the gospel so that if anyone comes to you with a different gospel, you'll know it immediately. Say, no, that's not right. So I'm saved by grace through faith, not because of anything I did, not because of any money I could give you, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, maybe you find yourself in any number of those places. My prayer as we have come to this place has been that if you find yourself far from God, that you would repent. And that by repenting, you would wash and be clean. That just like the servants, I come to you today as a servant asking you to wash and be clean. God has not asked you to do some great act for him, just to wash and be clean. Repent, be forgiven.